Today's guest on the podcast is a return guest. Jeff Grant is here, Reverend Jeffrey Grant. He was on episode 112 of the podcast, and he said, oh, that was my least favorite episode interview I've ever done. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, thanks. No. But he said, oh, I just didn't feel like I was on my game, uh, which I think is so funny because it was a great, great interview. And so if you want to hear more of his story, um, kind of the history of how he started out and went to prison after being an attorney and an addict and all of these things, he's got a fascinating, fascinating story to becoming a minister and with a prison ministry and, and sober and beyond. So fascinating, fascinating story. He touches on it a little bit in this episode, but I thought it would be great to bring Jeff back to talk about just some hope and give us some words of encouragement during this very difficult time. And I am grateful that he stopped in to do so. You can learn more about his organization at prisonist.org. That's prisonist.org. And follow him on Instagram at R-E-V, Jeff Grant, Rev Jeff Grant. And I look forward to continuing to stay in touch with Jeff and bring his message to you guys as well. I hope you all enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, Jeff. How are you? Good. Thank you. So it was so wonderful being on your daily meeting yesterday and getting to meet your crew. Yeah, thank you. You definitely added a lot to it being the the solo male. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little freaky. (laughs) It wasn't. And and everyone there is so fierce, you know, so (laughs) empowered and and uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a great experience for well, me. Well, good. Well, good. So we were talking offline. You mentioned that um, – go ahead and just, just say what you were saying about you have a book. And because um, we were just talking I, about how's the book doing and, you know, chit-chat about when you put yourself out into the world. It's, it's always weird because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, well, I'm in awe that you put your book out there. And um, it, it's actually been running on our uh, emails and on our website. So hopefully people are buying it from yeah. um, prisoners.org or what, um, whatever we've been sending out. Well, I appreciate um, that. Any help is good help. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but I've had a book on the shelf for years. And one of the issues I had with putting out the book was that when I started writing it, it was a, a recovery story. Then it was a survival in prison story. And now the the best part of my story is probably what I've been doing since prison and um, running a prison ministry and um, and the service I've been able to do through the last uh, 13 years I've been out of prison. And that's kind of like in real time. You know, it's like a, it's right. hard to be re- it's hard to be reflective. But one thing that's happened is because I've worked with um, a couple of literary agents now um, is that they pushed me to dig deep into my story and my motivations and my emotions and all of that. And 
while it didn't help that much with the book, what it did was it really informed the ministry. Mm. So, so the vision that I developed or, or that I developed with my team, but we developed really came out of the process of kind of the hard work of pulling a book apart. Yeah. And so I feel like it was a very, very successful initiative, um, but has not resulted in a publishable book at this point. And um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. That's I'm, a really I'm, interesting idea too, that, you know, people a lot, you'll hear people say, Oh, I, I have a book inside of me. I need to write this book. And, you know, for whatever reason, people don't start to write books. I mean, because it's, it feels huge. Right. But yeah. just sitting down to write a book and to think out the process. I mean, it's what you say. You, you have no idea what's going to come out of it. No, it's really uh, let God in and let's just see what goes, at least for me. Yeah. But um, I do have a, a super cool idea. Uh, my daughter, my 35 year old eldest daughter, she's a very gifted writer, uh, Sarah Lawrence College uh, MFA, uh, creative writing graduate, and she writes up a storm. Mm -hmm. And what I've never seen is a book written from the two perspectives of parent and child, of people who've gone through uh, drug addiction and recovery and suicide attempt and prison and then have made their clawed their way back really to lives of of joy and purposefulness and she has her own family and we were estranged for years basically because what I did and, and uh, now we're super close but to write from those two perspectives this just could be a really interesting book Oh yeah, for sure. It's, it's so, like in fiction when you have two, two narrators, but it would be reality. <laughs> I mean, I mean, a perfect example is that we we happened to write the way this happened to us. We wrote about the same weekend, but we didn't know that each of us were writing about it. And it was a weekend where she came to visit me in prison, and. I was writing about it from my perspective of being in prison and having my daughter be on the road at night and, and what I was imagining what was happening and then what happened in the visiting room. And we're kind of, I was writing about that perspective and, um, and uh, I can tell you a little bit about that because it was a very particular series of events that happened on that weekend, which made it so interesting. But she was writing about it from the, from the experience of, of, being in the town and checking into a motel. And then she went out to a local Fridays or Bennigan's or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And she went down there and the prison I was in was, was um, very close to Lewisburg where uh, there's a big college there. I can't remember the name of um, out in Pennsylvania. It'll come to me. And she sat down and she was all alone and she was sitting in this booth, I guess I'm just imagining, but she was sitting down and the waiter came over to her, and the first thing the waiter said was, you're going, to you're going to the college or you're going to the prison? Oh, wow. And so the, 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 the reality of that, you know, it's so stark yeah. and so real as she's writing about that. And the binary sense of, of these are institutions within the town that this waiter works in. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it's so normalized. And that sounds like for, the opening line of the book, you know, like pouring coffee, you go into the college or the prison. <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. Yeah. And, it, and so when I got picked up from prison, this was in 2006, when I got picked up, um, it was in June of 2006 by a couple of friends who uh, drove me to my halfway house, which was in Hartford. So we had five hours to get from the middle of Pennsylvania to Hartford. Um, I wanted to stop and look around the town because I'd only heard about the town. When you're in prison, you never get to see the town. Right. <laughs> and But I heard about it from my visitors and I wanted to see the reptile gardens and I wanted to see the Walmart where my girlfriend, now my wife, when she got thrown off of the visiting line for for wearing capri pants, they called them shorts and they made her drive to the local Walmart and get appropriate pants so in my mind like this is all like a a whole magical place out there (laughs) exactly (laughs) and and my family said me and my friends who picked me up said just get out of here they're like jeff we're done (laughs) yeah (laughs) let's just there's nothing here let's just get out so uh fascinating so you see you can kind of see there's a book in there yeah and and I've written a lot about it, but um, um, I am going to see if whether or not my uh, my daughter and I can pull it together. And you know, it takes a year to write, and then another eighteen months to go through right. the process. Test it. I mean, you know, I know you're on Medium. I mean, that's a great place to to do installments and and test it out. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's I I told my daughter the, the same the same kind of idea. I told her that Charles Dickens couldn't get a publisher. <laughs> So he serialized a couple of his books in a, a London newspaper and yeah. people clamored for them. And so right. that's kind of what it's on. You know, I'm in my fantasy. People are just going to be like that's salivating, right. sal- salivating <laughs> over my story. I keep war- I keep mulling over that idea because I, I want to fin- I want to write this fiction book. I've had this story in my head for 20 years and I've started it. And um, I have a friend I keep sending bits to. And he's like, give me more, give me more. And I mean, I think he's a good friend. And so I don't know if he's telling me the truth. And so <laughs> part of me is like, maybe I'll just put this out on Medium and see what happens. See if people well, actually are interested in it. Well, I did send, I, I think I told you this. I sent five copies of your book into into prisons. Yes. And I think that's so awesome. And, and, I, and I know what happens in a prison when you're done with a book, you pass it on. Right. So I have no idea. These are all um, um, prison camps because um, you know, our constituency is all white collar and with few exceptions, they're in prison camps. Um, but I haven't asked them for reviews. And, <laughs> but, I know. Don't, don't let the prisoners give me bad reviews, Jeff. <laughs> well, at least, you, at least you get something that's thoughtful. Yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of time to think in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, so. I was, um, I did a book signing in, in Framingham up here. And mm-hmm. one of the women who came, she was a dentist or she is a dentist in one of the institutions. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm very interested in, in how it, how it is received and, mm-hmm. you know, people that have a lot of time to think and not just trying to blow through it mm-hmm. to get it done. <laughs> Yeah. Did I, did I ever tell you I was raised in Framingham? Did I tell you that? No. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was born in Boston. 
I can't tell. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know. It's uh, the, 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 the Long Island Jew accident accent is just too, so prevalent. I can't get rid of it. But um, I lived, um, I was born in Boston, then we moved out to Framingham. And when I was about six years old, we moved to Long Island. Oh, funny. Yeah, but I still have um, friends of the family who are there. So I, I've, I've uh, so driven with my kids to Boston. And we've stopped by and just kind of pointed at the house I grew up in. That's cool. I mean, the yeah. last time you and I talked was, um, so episode 112, we looked it up right before we <laughs> exactly. went on, <laughs> which I'm going to go ahead and call you out. Jeff is like, that's like the worst interview I've ever done. <laughs> I, it said, was a te- I thought it was a terrible, look, for those listening right now, <laughs> I, was like, I'm sorry. I don't want to dissuade you from going back and listening. But Jeff just the truth didn't feel is... like he was on his game. We'll just... Oh yeah, I'm definitely not as bubbly as I am right now. <laughs> I thought it was fine. And I think um, to get Jeff's backstory, it's good to go listen. But maybe you can tell everyone like the two minute canned version of because you mentioned prison and you obviously have a sure for your name. And I know you have a law degree. <laughs> well, so I people the two minutes. Oh, let's see. Grew up on Long Island, junior drug addict, went to law school, um, Settled down, very, very successful law firm, first in Manhattan and then up in Westchester. Uh, I don't know if the success was driven by the fact that I was such a great lawyer or I just was a good salesman. I have no idea. But ultimately, I became a good lawyer and uh, I was representing some large real estate companies and it was just skyrocketing. It was, you know, the go-go 90s. And uh, I had a sports injury in the early 90s, and I got hooked on opioids. And I had doctor friends and doctor co- uh, colleagues, clients, and they were just feeding me opioids for 10 years. And so I just spiraled down over those 10 years to the point where I was unable to do anything, really. And it was crazy. And um, the time came where... Um, both um, basically by not paying attention to my firm or just not showing up, we ran out of cash. So I invaded the client funds. So that was just a, a countdown to when I was going to wind up losing my law license, which actually happened. The second you touch client funds, you're done. You're done. And, and I knew that. I was a business lawyer. I was right. a corporate lawyer. I knew that. But um, I was out of my mind. Uh, Probably. Do you remember the, the day you crossed that threshold? I remember it so clearly. What was that? Like? I did I didn't for it was, I didn't for a long time. Yeah. Um it was it was a small amount of money. Yeah. I had 20 people working for me. But it was a relatively small amount of money and I could have accessed money I don't know 50 ways. I could put it on a credit card, anything. Yeah, you know, I had I had yeah, I had uh, the obligatory uh, American Express black card and all of that. <laughs> I unlimited unlimited credit on these right. things. That's you know, I'm, I'm I'm saying it now with kind of a laugh, but it's really a sad story. Just what we all need, right? Yeah, exactly. And um, so what happened was I um, I went to my office manager and I said, um, and she asked me what I wanted to do, and. Um, and the bank probably would have even floated it. Yeah, I, I had you know huge amounts of money in the escrow fund uh, because we were doing real estate deals. And I um, 
I told her just to transfer the money from the escrow fund to the uh, operating account. And she looked at me like I was nuts. Right. And I was nuts. And um, just with two keystrokes on the computer, it was done. Yeah. And that was it. And it was just like the feather falling on the on the scale. You know, it was just a quiet moment from which there was no turning back. And I was looking over my shoulder ever since. Mm. And then uh, 9-11 happened and I was in complete panic and the law firm was already spiraling downwards. And I, I knew on some level, um, although I was mostly in denial, but I knew on some level that the firm was going to end. But um, 9-11 funds uh, became available um, disaster relief funds. By the way, there's going to be tons of disaster relief funds out there now because of the coronavirus. And um, I'm in the midst of writing an article about um, be careful taking disaster relief money mm. and, and what to do um, because a lot of people went to prison for Katrina fraud and all kinds of things. And and you know, if people are taking money now, that two years from now, there's going to be a spate of prosecutions over it. So just this is like this is a sidebar to everyone. Yeah. Just be be really careful and just tell the truth and then turn the outcome over. It's like you don't have to lie or, or, or even fudge at all. Look at yeah. it like five steps ahead. Just tell the truth. Yeah. And, and if you don't know, say, I don't know. If they want financials and you don't have access to your financials or whatever is going on, just tell the truth. And wherever it goes, it goes. Because for me, um, I knew I was in one of the affected, affected counties and I, was, I would have gotten the money because there was very relaxed requirements. But I was so drug-addled and, and insane that I, I put on the application that I had an office a, a block from 9-11, a block from um, Ground Zero, which I didn't need to do. Mm. But um, I, I got the money, $247,000. And um, so that was my first mistake was lying on the application. The second mistake I made was uh, in the ensuing months, I had probably put I don't know, $100,000 on credit cards to, to prop up the firm. And the first thing I did when I got the money from uh, from the SBA was I repaid myself. I paid off the credit cards, and that's in violation of the uh, of, of the uh, covenants of the SBA loan because you can only use it for operating funds. So all I would have had to do was put it in a segregated account and repay myself from operating, and everything would have been fine. But I was so manic that. I think I ran around from bank to bank repaying these credit cards in one day. Wow. Just, I remember it just being so crazy and just, and it was this, this rising mania. And I was eventually uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder and eventually got on medication uh, after I uh, resigned my law license and tried to kill myself with the opioids. And that was the end of uh, my first life. And my second life is uh, really a recovery story. Um, 
and uh, in in recovery, in early recovery, I, I got arrested and um, I went to prison um, for four, almost fourteen months. But I was four years sober when I went, mm. and and that's not usual. Um, right. Most most people go to prison; they're 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 doing drugs up to the prison door. But um, I had three or four thousand AA meetings in me by the time I went to prison. So, um, I learned a lot about humility and respect and, uh, acceptance and uh, surrender and all the things you learn. And so I was able to make prison part of my recovery instead of uh, punishment. And, uh, so it wound up to be, uh, it was difficult. It was terrible, but, um, it was definitely a, a spiritual part of my journey that I understood. And it was fascinating because there were people there living on the edge, you know, living in, in extremists in ways that there people I never thought I would meet. Yeah. And, um, so it led to a whole new life, including the love story of finding, uh, and meeting my, uh, my wife in AA. And, um, we have a beautiful, beautiful life now. And, um, nowhere near the kind of grandiosity and uh, materialism that we had before um, or that I had with my, uh, with my family before, before I met her, but beautiful and uh, sensitive. And we, uh, it's a life of service. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. I feel blessed. So with what is going on right now, <laughs> When you turn on the television and, you know, it's gloom and doom and fear and what message do you have? I mean, you, you, you've been through 9-11, yeah. um, you've been through prison, you've been through addiction, a suicide attempt. I mean, th- when you are in the trenches and whether it's with alcohol or drugs, you know, making it worse, or if you, you don't have a substance, but you're still drowning you feel that sense of dread and drowning mm-hmm. and like how are we going to get through this and like what message do you have what what comforting words i think is what people are looking for um but also a next step it it almost sounds trite to be talking about hope yeah but it's the truth there was no way on the day that I tried to kill myself, there was no day, there was no way I woke up the next morning. And what I said to myself was, you know, I'm going to go from being a Jewish lawyer in New York City to being a Catholic priest in Connecticut, running a prison ministry for people who've been uh, prosecuted for white collar crimes. Right. The, that, the, you, couldn't the, have, you couldn't have guessed that. <laughs> Right. There wasn't like a direct path. It was a lot of little steps. And it was waking up every single morning and doing an inventory and pushing, pushing pawns across the, the chessboard one at a time. And every day accomplishing something, something. And knowing that Anywhere is better than where I am today. Mm-hmm. I was in so deep that it didn't make a difference what direction I went in, north, south, east, west. I just had to move off of where I was. 
to accomplish something. But the most important thing was to wake up the next day and, uh, and understand where I was in that moment, what, how the world had changed overnight, how I had changed over overnight, how, what I had accomplished, and then seeing how all the pieces realign based upon what I accomplished. Otherwise, it would have been like calling up my, my, my stockbroker, uh, although I didn't have one anymore, calling up my stockbroker and saying, I'd like to buy uh, 10 shares of Apple at yesterday's price. Yeah. They would say, like, you know, uh, like I was crazy. You can only buy the stock at what the price is right now. And so that was what I approached life as. And that's what I'm approaching life as right now. So what can I do right now to make my life better and, and better for the people around me? What can I do with my attitude? What can I do with my body? What can I do with my service? And so already in the last two weeks, I'm doing things that I really haven't done since I'm in prison. I'm, I'm, I'm being much more careful about what I eat. I am, I'm working out. I am uh, emphasizing on my health. These are things I can control um, because we can be outdoors and we live in the Litchfield Hills now. I've been mountain hiking. I've been out with the dog. I've been doing things. Lynn and I have been able to do things outdoors. I mean, right. and we're able to do things together. I, I'm on like four Zoom meetings a day for, including yours yesterday. Yeah. <clears throat> but I spend all day doing that in my work anyway. I, I work with people all over the country. So I don't know that I was prophetic or prescient or clairvoyant in, 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 in setting up a ministry that was fundamentally done online and by and by video um mostly what it was was that i was just getting older and <laughs> I, and and i couldn't I, I just couldn't do the wear and tear anymore yeah yeah so to actually be able to be of service to people who are suffering right now um what a gift and everybody can do this this is not you know i'm i'm certainly not special in, in doing this. I just, I understood my, uh, I, I came to terms with my limitations and I've been through just so much crap that, um, that this is an opportunity to rise to the occasion. And it doesn't require, in my opinion, it doesn't require heroics. I don't need to be Superman. I just need to show up. Right. And, and so uh, honestly, without any platitudes, because we, you and I talked about this before this podcast, I saw you yesterday with uh, online with a lot of women. And what I didn't know was that this is something that you do regularly, that this is I didn't know until I, I, I logged on yesterday. Yeah. And that and that. So here's a little pocket of the world I didn't know about. And I do the same thing. Right. We have a white collar support group every every Monday night with people who are living in isolation because of their legal issues, mostly, or because of their self-imposed imprisonment. And they're all over the country and actually all over the world because you have people from South America now in Canada. And and I know we're doing that, but I really had no idea what you were doing. 
And so now all of these things, I feel like we're, we're finding out about different pieces of one another forced by the situation. Right. And what a richness out there. I mean, uh, we, I think we want to paint everything with such a broad brush as being material or, mm-hmm. or, or somehow being, or somehow, if you don't make a lot of money, somehow you're less than. Right. But, but the reality is, is that a very small percentage of the world is ever going to be on CNBC. Mostly we're people just trying to survive and doing it the, the best way we can. And the people who are most fortunate are the people who've come together in community and realize that their attempts to do it alone were misplaced. Right. And so here we are now and whether or not we can actually be in the same room or touch one another or, or have that tactile sense, um, in some ways, we're together more than ever. Right. So well, um, Laura McCowan, she's a sobriety author and, and runs. She she's been in the sobriety space forever, and she she posted, um, I guess last Friday, that she was hosting online sobriety meetings. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's such a great idea. And she and I texted her and I said, hey, how can I help? And she said, you can be our first speaker. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> And um, I, I didn't, I never did AA. I mean, I did it for like a couple of months in 2004 and mm-hmm. I, I just got sober by, you know, I, and at any time I will pop into AA if I ever feel that I need to get my butt there. So it's not that I don't think it, it's a thing. It's just, I didn't do that, you know? So I attended her online meeting and I thought, oh my gosh, I loved this part of AA. I loved that there was a reading and that someone spoke. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I, I have a lot of sobriety uh, people in my sobriety community. I have this group, Grateful Sobriety. But I also have a, a larger audience that could benefit from these meetings that aren't necessarily sobriety-based. You know, just a meeting. And so that's where um, I extended, you know, these daily community meetups. And it's been such a great gift for me. And, you know, I know it, it, quote, helps people, but I didn't realize how much I needed to put myself out there and give and that that's fundamentally a part of who I am. And if I don't do that, I get cagey and angry and selfish. And um, it really is about putting yourself out there to help others and to be of service to for your own sanity. I mean, and if everyone did that, like what a better world, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, I I, I, I agree. Look, I, I think that you're very impressive for a lot of reasons. And, and a lot of a lot of that is because of the way our stories intersect. Yeah. But um, we met because I was on the Rich Roll podcast and he has hun- hundreds of thousands of listeners. And I didn't realize when he asked me to be on his podcast, what the effect would be, the ripple effect would be of people hearing my voice and hearing my story and interacting with Rich in, in, a, in such an organic and real way. I didn't realize that the power in that and how many people would reach out to me with uh, substance abuse issues and uh, uh, prison issues and, and all kinds of little pieces that they picked up from the podcast. And so you were actually the first person who reached out to me post ritual. No um, kidding. Yeah, actually, you were the first person with a podcast. Yeah. 
Well, because the podcast dropped, I listened to it. I sat in a parking lot in Kansas because we lived in Kansas at the time. And I listened for like an hour and a half just sitting in a parking lot to you. And I got back to my house and sent you an email. <laughs> so like, well, that's probably why I was first. <laughs> by the way, that's ritual.com episode 440. <laughs> and, um, but you reached out to me right away. Yeah. And so, um, we did that podcast. Um, what, what did we say? It was 112, 112. on your podcast. Your, your most hated podcast. <laughs> yeah, my, my, most, my most hated podcast. I'm, Just I think like I'm I hated do- that podcast. I'm like, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I feel like I'm doing better today. You're doing, and, yeah, you did fine then. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and, and so here's the thing. It, what it did was um, not only have people reached out to me because of your podcast, but it put you firmly on my radar too. <laughs> and so I've been following you and I feel like I made a friend and, and your book dropped not that long after. And so I go, wow, like you have this complex, interesting life that's going on right now. I don't mean just like your story, like, like you're, you're really in the present. And that's how I feel. And so what is it to con- compare notes and to be actually propping up each other's mission or ministry, if you will? And so I was watching you put things out on Instagram and all, and then you're, you're doing your book tour and all of that. And I'm going, wow, like, I, 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 I can't. I'm not even in the headspace where I really understand what that is. But <laughs> you there, though. But, but you're doing it. <laughs> I don't know, you know what this is. You know, I mean, like, dude, you're doing yeah. it. And and that, what can I do just to help? And just to, you know, it's a little corner of the world, but we have a connection now. Right. So there it is. And so I started to promote your book and said that into prison. And, and so... Um, a week or two ago, um, you and I were, were corresponding. I can't remember if we spoke, but we were definitely emailing. Or, um, and, and the topic came up about introducing you to Rich Roll. Right. And because I think you would be a perfect, perfect guest for Rich. And, and have I and so many similarities, me and Rich, beside him being an excellent athlete. And I was just okay. <laughs> Oh yeah, like like to move from like really fucked up to doing right. some good things, right? And but 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 similar touch points, other than other than the fact that um, I ne- I never became a triathlete, not um, yet, yeah, not yet. But but you and Rich certainly have, and but so many stories about being lawyers and 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 life uh, hitting rock bottom, and 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 your story is incredible. So. I did reach out to uh, to Rich and Jason, and uh, hopefully they'll contact you. Um, but I'm reinforcing it with this podcast, by the way. <laughs> Putting the because, pressure on. Well, yeah, oh, you're yeah. not the only one. I mean, people have tagged us and 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 posts for years, like Rich and Meredith, mm-hmm. please talk. And we have a mutual friend, um, Danny Grable, who did Epic mm-hmm. Five, and so she's she's reached out to him, and um, I've you know I've emailed him for years, and I'm like. Hello, hello. <laughs> okay, well, well, here's here's a shout out I'm going to give right now because if I if I say his name, he's going to listen to this podcast. That's right. That's My right. dear dear friend Tom Scott, who's the founder of the Nantucket Project, which is where Rich and I met because we were both speaking at the Nantucket Project. So, Tom Scott 
is someone who could definitely reach out to Rich. So <laughs> I'm naming you right now, Tom. I know you're on the road driving back from picking up your son. In, Everyone's in, listening to this. Oh, yeah. What right. is this podcast so, even about? So, Tom, I'm reaching out to you right now. Please help me connect Meredith and Rich. How's that? Well, it's so hard, too, because, yeah, it sounds like, oh, this is self-promotional, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, no, I really want to sit down and talk to this guy because mm -hmm. I think we would have a great conversation that could, you know, ring a lot of bells and people would be like, oh, my gosh, me too. And to, I think the beautiful thing about Rich's story and about my story and your story is it is the stark contrast from where you can start and where you can be now. Yeah. And, and people who are in the trenches and they, they feel like are in the ditches rather, and they feel like there's no way out need to hear these stories. Yeah. Like they need to hear it because it's, it's that going back to what you said is hope. You, and, and sometimes if you don't see it, you, you can't imagine it. And so that's, that's why it's so important. And, and that's the only reason I really want to talk to Rich Roll. Because <laughs> I think yeah. it's to be a great fun time. Well, I, I think what, we, the three of us do understand is that we could never have imagined what the last 10 or 15 years were going to be for us right. from where we were at our lowest and then, and then where we are now and how that translates, how arrogant mm. it would be of us to even possibly imagine what the next 10 or 15 years are going to look like. Right. So, right. So why, why live in this, in this dread? Why live in this fear when, when we've already proved to ourselves that we have no idea and that life's magical and mystical and it's going to take us in the way it's going to take us? And to me, there's, there's really only two things that we need to do um, spiritually. Um, the, the second is to be in the middle of the river and don't swim upstream, just be in acceptance and, 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 and allow the river to take you where it's going to take you. And, and um, maybe our job is to like keep, push ourselves off the rocks every once in a while, but God is just going to um, take us. And the vistas you see as the river rounds curves and things like that is just amazing. It's life. It's, yeah. it's, it's the magic of the universe. But the first thing that we have to do in order to do that is we have to get into the middle of the river. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and most of us are, are lashed to the dock. We're afraid to push off the dock and into the middle of the river. And this is not a one-time thing. I find myself doing it all the time. Oh, right. my God, am I afraid to do this or am I afraid to do that? And I so admire the people who just – kind of are brave enough or have enough courage to just do it. And, and, and sometimes it's in spite of their fears and sometimes it's because of their fears or sometimes it's because they just had enough practice that they know just turn it over and let go and see where it goes. And for me, every time I do that, life changes and, because my, my, uh, I'm surrounded with better, more spiritual, healthier people, places, and things, the chances are that every time I give up something that's bad for me and create the void, 
you know, nature abhors a void and, and something new is going to come in to replace the thing I've given up. But because I'm, I have better, more healthy surroundings, the chances are that what comes into that void is going to be healthier than the thing I've given up. Right. But there's no guarantee. Mm -hmm. But all I really have to do is remember that once a day and just give up something that's negative and allow the space, the void for something else to come in and wake up a year later and 365 days, my life is nothing like it was a year ago. And I just think that's the secret to change. That's the secret. And it's, it's breaking that things down into manageable pieces. I mean, I'm sure I know you're a triathlete or a weightlifter. I'm sure that you don't move from 20 pounds to 50 pounds overnight. You, it's a process. Right. And it is. And I think the acceptance of that is where when, when people say, oh my gosh, I'm stuck. I can't move forward. I'm never going to change. It's, it's the failure to accept that moving the needle, even a smidge is progress. It, it, like we're looking, we want something so big, the change, we want the change to be so big, so instantaneous, so revolutionary and to alleviate the pain. And that cycle of, of wanting that is what leads us to addiction and sadness and depression. And, and it just, it feeds the whole, like it just feeds the vicious cycle. And so what I tell anyone I, that is struggling with this is you have to move the needle just a little bit. And, and yeah. you said moving off of where I was the day before, or, you know, if, if you're stuck on a place, like all you've got to do is move off of that place in that moment. And, and that can be so small. Like if you've been stuck in your house for three days and you're bitter and you're angry to move off of that place is as simple as walking out of your door. Yesterday, it was not a sunny day, and I did not want to go to the park. There's a park that's about three minutes from my house called Three Rivers Park, and my wife and I, we we take the dog there. And I had been hunched over the computer all day um, doing social media and doing whatever I could do. And it was already like 4.30 in the afternoon, and I hadn't done any exercise. and, And I just looked at her. I said, I don't want to go. And she said, and she said to me, that's why you should go. Right. And it was great. It was fantastic. And there was just this piece that was locked up in my mind that it was too late or, or just, I don't even know where the message comes from. Right. That it's too late in the day that we're too tired, that we've had a shower, like whatever. <laughs> and, and, and it didn't have to be anything big, you know, right. We, we just went, honestly, it was more of a stroll than it was anything else. And, but it was a beautiful three miles roughly. And, mm-hmm. and, and if nothing else, what it does, it sets me up to do the same thing or something else today. Right. I'm, I'm now not 48 hours from the last, mm-hmm. for, from the last sober reference. I'm, um, 24 hours. And that's a, that's a big difference. It is. It is. I had a friend call me yesterday and she um, gave me three things that were wrong, you know, that she was panicking about. And I, and the first one was, I can't work out. My gym is closed. And, and I said, okay, so let's explore that. Um, because what I think the issue is, is we 
are stuck in the cycle of I've got to work out to burn calories, to look better, to lose weight. And I said, in this, where we are now, this is no longer consideration. Working out movement is about mental health. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is about getting out of your house. This is, a, it's not even like, we're not going to talk about working out for weight loss right now. This is about, this is so much bigger. It's mm-hmm. symbolic. It's, and she said, oh my God, I never thought about that. And so even that mind shift, especially with movement, and I know in women, especially when we're always trying to exercise ourselves into punishment, yeah. Um, to just, this is not about that. Like just, it's, it's about moving in order to, to feel life, to feel that we're alive and, and to, like you said, reinforce it because mm-hmm. once you do it one day, it's a lot easier to do it the next day. And that she, goes for the bad stuff too. <laughs> like ice cream. She, she, <laughs> Which is see, my problem. You see, you're right. Oh yeah, you sent me that 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 gif yesterday. It's a gif or gif. I never know. But it's gif. Like gif. wait, yeah, no, yeah. it's gif. Gif. Oh shoot. I, I don't know what. Know. It... I think it's gif, like gift. I someone think so told me. Too. Yeah. But but you see, you you reminded me of of something that you're you're keenly aware of in prison, or you should be. And prison is just such a great incubator for for life's lessons, respect and care and dignity and. And it's, it's an, nobody who's never, if you've never been to prison, you really don't know what it's about and you're not going to see it on TV and have any idea because they, uh, they're, they're just putting out sensationalized content for the purpose of getting people to watch. But prison is really a very spiritual place. It's people, you know, really living on the edge who've learned to come together and, and be in a family, be in a community in there. And and one of the things that you learn is that prison is a very bad place to, to hurt yourself. It's a very bad place to need medical assistance. If you can avoid it, it's a good thing. So people who are there short term, like most people who are there for white collar crimes or certainly for me, um, it's much more important to work on the things that I wouldn't normally work on, like uh, stretching or cardio or yoga. Well, I learned about yoga in prison. Mm-hmm. And, and so in gravitating towards people who would teach me health, more healthy things while I was in there, because everything's run by the inmates. Um, one of the things they told me when I went to the stretching and yoga class, they said, never touch a weight while you're in prison. Because uh, um, it's different if you're a long-termer, I guess. But never touch a weight. Just use your body weight. So that means sit-ups and push-ups and, and leg lifts and whatever it happens to be. But you don't want to put yourself in a position where, where because your form is not right, you've hurt yourself by lifting weight. You don't have the coaching. You don't have the, you, you, you don't have the machines that you have in a, in a gym. But it's hard to hurt yourself by using just your own body weight. And so I've made so much sense to me. Like, why do I think I need to go to a gym in order to spend 20 minutes doing something that's profoundly healthy for myself? Right. Right. It's hard. I mean, it's hard because we're programmed in a way to, to do all these things. And I, I love to lift weights, but you know, we're working out on my porch and realizing it's limited. I mean, I about, I thought I didn't even do a workout yesterday and I woke up this morning and couldn't move. <laughs> so, I mean, and I did it to myself with, with what was on my porch, you know, so it is, it is, 
it is this mental state. We have to be in a mental state of resourcefulness. And and that's hard when the world feels like it's falling down around us. But yeah, I mean, it goes back to what you mentioned with hope and, and always keeping your eye on what can I do in this moment? And, and that requires moving and, and yeah. going forward and making a choice. But yeah. Well, I am so grateful for you, Jeff. I am, I'm glad that Rich brought us together, and I look forward to you bringing Rich and I together. <laughs> together. <laughs> I'm gonna we'll just do... keep putting it out in the universe. <laughs> what, when you send me the link to this, I'm going to send it. I'm going to send it out momentarily, immediately. But you know the funny thing. This is the irony of it all because I know Rich records in his studio in LA. Like I couldn't get to him anyway. It's just. <laughs> My timing is always like slightly off, you know, yeah. he'll probably be like, yes, yeah, she's great. Let's circle back when, you know, this is all settled down. And then by then who knows, but it's fine. You know, it, the time will be perfect when the time is perfect. And that's, that's it, true. It's fine. But that's thank true. you, Jeff. I'm going to post the links up to all of your amazing work. And, um, I'm just grateful for you. I'm grateful for our, our odd little friendship we've got. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Meredith. And uh, blessings to you and your family. And, uh, we actually do live pretty close to each other right now. So, uh, so I'm looking forward to, uh, maybe meeting halfway in between for lunch one of these days. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the same 24 hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.